Welcome to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. In this program, Don Barger, director of the Southeast Regional Office of National Parks Conservation Association, introduces the program speaker, Jay Lutze. This is a rare book because it is essentially an administrative history of an environmental battle. And there's not very many of those that have been written. It's not often that you can actually get into the real lives that are impacted by an issue as it evolves from the perspective of someone who was intricately involved in it. I work for a national conservation organization. I get to be in this book. This book is not about me, and it's not about the other environmental organizations or other players who came in. It's largely about the people who live in a small North Carolina community that that calls itself Dogtown, who decided that the fate of taking an entire side of a mountain off next to the Appalachian Trail meant that they were going to suffer those abuses too. But ultimately, this is the story about Ollie and Ashley, some people that you will meet that Jay will tell you about, and about how they were joined by people they never thought they would even meet, much less work with, due to the persistence, the brilliance of the author of this book, who was in the process, he thought of writing a different book. Uh, his life became about this because it, it was so all-encompassing. And the result is that we have this magnificent portrayal of both the mountain cultures and the environmental battles uh, that have happened to protect them. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C. yesterday, and... Uh, there was uh, Senator Mark Udall was speaking to a group of national park advocates, and he made note of the fact of how important it was that Senator Richard Burr, a Republican senator from North Carolina, continues to be the advocate and the co-sponsor of a bill to fully fund the Land and Water Conservation Fund to help acquire land for preservation purposes, and how important that was. I would like you to join me in welcoming not only the, the author of Stand Up That Mountain, a noted conservationist, but also the guy who knew that the way to get Richard Burr to be the sponsor of that legislation was to take him fly fishing. Join me in welcoming Jay Lutze. Thanks, Don. Um, so I'm on this remarkable journey through the landscape and beyond. This book and this story has taken me to Utah and Oregon and New Hampshire and Vermont. And it, each of those stops, they each come about because somebody had a personal connection either to me or to this book. And I was thrilled when Don called me and said that there was some really cool stuff going on in downtown Knoxville and this series being one of those cool things um, when he asked me if I thought I could cross the mountains to come over here and talk about it I jumped at the opportunity it's really special for me um, Don is somebody who's come to mean a lot to me um, if you read the book or those of you who have already read it uh, you know that I was a desperate 
young man when I placed a call to Don from what I call the last pay phone in America <laughs> down on the sidewalk in Chapel Hill. And um, I had been given his name from Trip Van Oppen, who became the lead attorney on this case. And Trip didn't quite know what his organ- organization could do at that point, five minutes into my telling my story. But he said, I know one thing for sure, you need to call Don Barger and get his take on this. And so I went outside to the payphone, and I, I called Don, and we had a memorable conversation, which I recount in the book. So I'm here because Don asked me to come here, and I would do anything that he asked. And um, it's an honor, and I'm so glad to see some friends here, including Don's wife, Lisa. Um, thank you for having me. Don set the action of the story well, I think, um, So I'd like to spend the time that we have together reading a little bit from the book, talking a little bit about conservation in general in our region, because that's what drives me. It's the only thing that kept me in the chair for three years while I wrote this story down, because I thought that we all sometimes need some inspiration in the battles to come, the battles that are ongoing, whether it's um, fracking coming to your neighborhood or removal of stone from public lands, um, some, of the, some of the battles that we all read about and some of us take part in daily. So I thought I'd start today, and it's an indication of our friendship that Don and I both picked the same passage that we'd like to hear today, being the first day of spring. I'm going to transport us from downtown Knoxville to where I live and where I woke up this morning actually at uh, at 6 o'clock with uh, the sun starting to creep up over the, over the Blue Ridge. Winter claws at the ridges and valleys of the Appalachians, and it is slow to loosen its grip. Some nights the old pine and chestnut wood in my house seem to grow brittle in the frigid air, and there is a real fear during storms that the nails will pop and the whole affair will shatter like so much glass. In the coldest months, I move into the loft above my kitchen to work and sleep tucked beneath the rafters because that is where the heat in my house pools. With the sun low on the horizon, I often wear sunglasses in the house, especially when it snows, because at this elevation, it's like living in a dazzling snow globe. My eyes burn with the glare. In late February, the ice continues to accrue on the highest elevations, and the snows drift onto the eastern and southern sides of the grassy balds, driven off the tops by the lethal winds that come ransacking down from the north and the northwest. The weak winter sun never climbs high enough to chase the dark from the valleys, and the hollers store cold air like dammed creeks hold water, and the ground shows no sign of living of ever greening again. But by early March, the odd day reminds you of the southerly nature of the place. An icy morning turns into a warm afternoon on the ridges. The sun feels hot on the face. When the wind swings from the south, you can smell the piney woods of Georgia, the red clay of Alabama. The seeps and drainages are the first to green up. Then the carpet of wildflowers seems to weave itself outward towards the ridges, then upward toward the summits. There comes a day when the fringed facilia 
blankets the haggard ground like a jeweled throw, the little white parasols nodding in the breezes. Trout lilies appear overnight, their speckled leaves firm and mottled with bronze and green, and it is hard to believe they make no noise, so audacious is their arrival. Some old-timers remember when the springtime slopes were draped with a sea of creamy chestnut blossoms, when that great tree lorded over the forest. Felled by a blight in the years after the Great Depression, no chestnut trees stand anymore. Those stumps do sprout. No blossoms, just stumps and sprouts and dead leaners reclining against other trees. Now the dogwoods with their wounds of Christ flowers are disappearing from Appalachia too. A fungus from Asia attacks them in the cool, moist highlands on the steep hillsides and the northern exposures. They are already gone from these places. The stream banks are bereft of their signature beauty. But the cherry trees still bloom, as does the shad bush, sarvice around here, as in funeral sarvice, announcing the ground is soft enough, finally, for burying the winter dead. The most astonishing values of green burst from the supple limbs of beeches and maples, and then, at last, the oaks. The mice pour out of their winter homes, dart into the fields, seeking seeds, and the hawks come to see about that. So that's my place, and that's um, the place that shaped me and that I was so in love with that I would fight for it, which is uh, how a lot of you feel about your place, and I relate. So I moved back to this place where I'd spent my childhood summers after law school wanting to find my fictional voice. All I wanted to do was write. Um, as I sat in my law school classes, I knew it was close to what I was looking for in a life, in a career, but it wasn't quite what I wanted. What I wanted was to write. So I was living in this cabin that my family built, and I was typing on an electric typewriter, looking for my fictional voice, and I started hearing trees falling on the other side of the valley. I investigated what was going on, and it turned out the largest surface mine planned in western North Carolina was coming right to Dogtown on the summit of Bellevue Mountain. I looked into what could be done about eliminating the permit and the threat I saw to the Appalachian Trail, and what I found um, out was that the permit had already been issued. They were within their rights to tear out the top of the mountain, clear the face, which is what they were in the process of doing, and um, there really wasn't much that could be done at this point. We were too late. And then my phone rang, and it was this very articulate woman who told me that that mining act under which the permit was issued was being violated right behind her house. So here was somebody living right next to this mine site who was confident that she had evidence she could show me that could turn the tide in a battle that we hadn't even started yet. So I told her I wanted to meet her and see what evidence she had, and I went the next day um, at the place we'd chosen to meet, and that's when I learned that she was a 14-year-old girl. And her Aunt Ollie and her Uncle Curly had bought her a dial-up internet connection for $14.95 a month, and she had sat in the place that they lived where she was being raised and read the Mining Act of 1971 online. And she had printed it out on one of those printers that had the big wheel, had the little holes on the sides of the paper that you tore off 
And she had it all marked up. She gave me this copy and she said, he's violating it many different ways. And it's all in here. And I looked at this copy where she'd used a highlighter. She's big into orange highlighter. And um, I can remember one of the first things I ever said to this person was, if you highlight everything, you've in fact highlighted nothing. (laughs) Every once in a while, an article went unhighlighted. The... (laughs) so I want to introduce you now to that person and her remarkable family this is her aunt Ollie the story of the southern mountains is told in her face the crepe soft skin is laid over stone hard bone she's as white as February snow but her blue eyes smolder I ask her where did they come from your father's people when did they come into these mountains I want to hear about her ancestors the Cherokee side and the Scots-Irish kin, the old-timers who came here to hide or scratch dirt or seek a wage felling timber. I want to hear about her wire-thin Appalachian grandmothers who walked these steep ridges, these wildflower slopes. But she can't call it up. Either she can't remember or she won't. Maybe all the stories were lost in her youth when she lived hard, when she drank hard. And all she will tell me is this. My grandfather shot his own sister in the potato patch over a piece of land. And I guess that's what you're wanting to hear. She shakes her head and laughs at her bloodline, her own destiny. Then she hardens. You'll be sorry you ever knowed me. I'm already sorry, I say, lying. It's just how we talk. Olive Cook Cox. She married a man named Carpenter bore a son, but that's all she'll say of that man, and there's no point asking for any more. Later, she married Dallas Cox from across the line in Tennessee, so now she's Olive Cook Cox. She worries one raw hand into the other. Tell me about all of them, I say. I'll put it in a book. You trust me, don't you? She only shakes her head softly. Son, she says, you ain't mountain. I'm mountain. That's all the hell I am. And you wouldn't never understand. She is right, but I will try. So this is the challenge that I posed for myself, how to understand Ollie and Ashley and the threat that they were waking up, facing every morning. I knew the threat I was facing. It was backup beepers for 99 years, which is the term of the lease. I could not see the quarry, the mine site from my house, but I could hear it. I could hear the shovel hitting rock. I could hear the engines groan. I could hear the jake breaks, but I couldn't see it. They could see it. They could hear it. They could feel it. They felt the ground shake when they pulled shots of dynamite to set the crusher jaw, cracked the foundation on their house. So there was a a health and a safety threat to them. But I was processing it also in terms of the threat to the Appalachian Trail. My land trust, Southern Appalachian Highlands Conservancy, had purchased Hump Mountain in 1981 for $1 million. And we did it so that the Appalachian Trail could be relocated off of Highway 19E up onto the grassy balds of the Highlands of Rhone, one of the most spectacular scenic spots in the eastern United States. And we succeeded in that effort. 
and you gain the view of Grandfather Mountain, Mount Rogers in Virginia, Grayson Highlands, New River Headwaters, Limble Gorge, Mount Mitchell, the highest mountain in the east. That's what you gained. But you also gained exposure to all these potential threats to your experience. And this was on the nearest facing ridge to the place we had bought for a million dollars in 1981 and given it to the public. And since that time, the public had become investors in that experience of using the Appalachian Trail just as it lay. So I was processing both of these threats. I went to their house at their invitation to have dinner with them. Ashley asked me to come to the house for supper, and I accepted. They lived on the second floor of a defunct auto repair shop at the head of Cranberry Gap, right under the excavation site for the mine. The place still smelled of crankcases and oily tools. The house they were building, the new house, the one with the cracked foundation, was just across the road, right next to the home of Ollie's brother, just up the hill from the trailer where her mother lived. The room they lived in measured 40 feet by 30 feet, and they had divided it off into smaller areas by hanging sheets and bedspreads. Every corner, every flat place was heaped with belongings. Ashley fell all over herself apologizing. It's an awful mess, she said, but we're moving across the road to the new house one of these days if we can get it finished, so we're not incentivized to clean it up. <laughs> we settled in. They told me about the building we were in. Their landlord was Mr. Paul Brown, the owner of the mine, who when he bought the Charles Smith tract for his access road, had come to own everything on it, including this old auto shop and the apartment I was sitting in. If you made this up, nobody would believe it. Paul Brown, I managed. Our Paul, the owner of the mine. Why, yeah, Freddie said, as if all things were not only possible but likely. We haven't had any trouble out of Paul. He's just as nice as he can be, you know, for a damn snake. <laughs> well, you don't want to get him mad is all, Ollie said. He'll cuss you up and down. But I'm honest, dear old dad never gives me any problems at all, has he, Ashley? So she called him dear old dad, and I tried to process why she did this. I reflected on earlier in the conversation they had mentioned Captain Nasty, and I said, why are you using these nicknames? They looked at me like I was born yesterday. And they said, well, it's like this. We don't really want anybody listening to our telephone calls. And if they do, we don't want them to know who we're talking about. So everybody gets a nickname. Now, this to me was a whole new deal. But they had scanning equipment. They listened to everybody else's conversations. <laughs> so certainly they believed everybody else was listening to theirs. So Ashley and Ollie would call me in the morning, and I learned very quickly you're not ever supposed to speak on a, um, on a cordless phone. That's the easiest signal to pick up. And this was a little bit before cell phones. This was in the year 2000. I didn't have a cell phone. And so they'd start conversations with my little buddy, which was my nickname. My little buddy, are you on a landline? Because you ain't going to believe this. I'd say, I'm on a landline. They'd say, well, dear old dad was late getting to work, and the El Camino kid's taking three days off, and... Traco Daddy's not been seen in over a week. He's off hauling firewood over in Elizabethan last time we heard. And uh, there were stories about the bald eagle. There were stories about Captain Nasty and the rest. <laughs> it was an education for me, I can assure you. We settled in on a huge sectional sofa that nearly made a complete square. They pushed soft drinks and little Debbie cakes on me. They wanted to tell me everything. 
They told stories about the owner of the mine cussing his employees right beneath their window out on the hall road. They had some of these episodes on videotape. They'd be happy to show them to me if I wanted to see for myself. They told me of more outrages perpetrated by Bill Beck out of the Asheville Regional Office of the Department of Environment and Natural Resources. I was filled in on the circus endemic in my own county. Everybody knew about the long-running feud between Snowball Clawson and Nub Taylor, our clerk of court, but I got the background story on the famous murder of my neighbor, Nod Buchanan, as well, and the untold tale of how poor Jerry Lee Buchanan lost the will to live after Vietnam. Ollie had the rundown on the further adventures of my other neighbor, David Sparks, as well, also known as Sparky. Her husband said, Curly said, Sparky keeps having people die where he's at. And that was true. Two people on Birchfield Creek Road, my road, died, and Sparky ended up spending his last days in prison. This clan seemed to know everything about everybody between Elk Park and Spruce Pine, especially when it came to fights and hard feelings and broken relations. After a while, they asked a question I always get asked eventually. Didn't Rob Thomas shoot your daddy a long time ago up on Yaller Mountain? Shot at him, I said, but he missed, proud that my own family figured into their narrative of local happenings. Mostly I was interested in what they knew about the mine and about Paul Brown. I learned that they videotaped and photographed nearly everything they saw out the windows. When the primary crusher jaw went up on the hill on a low boy, they got it on tape. When Bill Beck, out of the Asheville Regional Office, came to conduct an inspection, Ollie recorded his every move until he went up on the mountain out of view. When the blasting company got locked out at the Hall Road gate, Ashley had the pictures to document it. Ashley was teaching me, the happy Luddite, how to use the Internet on her computer in the corner of the room, was demonstrating how she found the North Carolina General Statutes online when Ollie hurled an oath. What's the matter, I asked. At least two of them, but maybe all four, replied in unison, Tony. Tony was coming across the road. Who's Tony, I asked. Don't say anything, Ashley instructed. He'll be drunk. He's my daddy. Tony Cook was a character around the county. For many years, he ran the Linville Fish Camp, a breakfast and lunch place. He was outspoken, hard-drinking, and a fool. That very election cycle, Tony was running for county commissioner, and he had billboards up all over the county that said, Tony Cook, walk the walk, talk the talk. I do not want any county pay. From the courthouse to the White House. It was the longest, most elaborate, most discombobulated billboard you've ever seen. <laughs> Out of 12 candidates, I'm proud to say, in my county, he came in 12th. <laughs> He stomped heavily up the wooden steps from the old garage space to the living quarters. We all said some hellos, and Tony fell into a chair. Jay's a lawyer, Ollie said. Is that right? Yes, yeah, son, she said. You ought to have seen him telling Sam Laws and the county commissioners about that Appalachian Trail. Son, the commissioners was tied in knots. Appalachian Trail, Tony scoffed. Not really, I said, interjecting myself, responding to the puff about me being a lawyer. But I thought she said you was a lawyer. Well, not really, I repeated. I went to law school, but I'm not practicing law. I'm actually a writer. 
a book writer? I guess so. I said, I am writing a book. Well, is it a damn good one? <laughs> I hope it is, I said. That is my intention. He glared at me through swimmy eyes. So let me get this straight. You're a book writer and a lawyer. I went to law school, I corrected one final time. In that case, Tony had something to show me. He dug around in his pockets and came over to me. He leaned over my shoulder, smelling of rancid cologne and motorcycle grease. I could barely smell the liquor. He unfolded a sheet of paper and he offered it to me. It's a handwritten document of some sort. I want my house back, he said. My bafflement must have been apparent because I was hit with a blizzard of history and I learned that Tony, as much as anyone else, had started the fight I had stepped into. Back in the summer, after the hall road was cleared and the mining equipment started to arrive, Tony wrote letters to the North Carolina Division of Land Resources complaining of dust, damage to his spring, and damage to the structure of his house. Between August and November, he had penned nine complaints and sent them off to Raleigh. Dear old dad was coming in here, killing us, he said. But then, in December, Tony had stopped writing letters. His sister explained the sudden twist. Well, Jay, one day dear old dad paid Tony a personal visit and waved a check in front of his nose. And he took the bait. He signed dear old dad's check. He cashed it at the damn bank. Tony had sold his house, the little gray and black pile just across the road to his sister's arch enemy. But now he wanted it back. Why did you sell it? I asked the obvious question. Well, I can't live near any rock crusher, he said, as if wounded. I've got bad lungs, and he's done ruined my water. I can't live without my water. Can't lick, dear old dad. The recriminations in the air filled the space. Ashley burned at a low boil just off my elbow. Well, now what? I asked. Well, I want you to tell me if that's legal. Shook an unsteady finger at the paper in my hands. How it got sold, I don't believe he can do what he done. I wanted a moment to read the paper to consider the question more closely, but Tony removed it from my hand and put it back in his pocket. What is it? I asked. It's a contract. It's what it is. It's wrote up. I thought you as a lawyer. Well, what does it say? I asked. Now Ashley filled in the details. In exchange for him selling his house to Paul Brown, he agreed not to ever speak ill of dear old dad or the Clark Stone Company again. I remember just enough from my contracts classes to recall the bones of a written contract. A meeting of the minds, consideration, a signature. Is it dated and signed, I asked. It was dated and signed by Tony Cook and Paul Brown both. Tony seemed to sink deeper in his chair. See, he bought me out and he said I can't fight the crusher no more if he give me my price. But that takes away my constitutional rights, don't it? And I don't believe you can take away a man's constitutional rights to speak out. Not in America. Actually, I said, I think you can contract away your right to speak. Well, I want my house back. Paul Brown stole it and I ought to shoot that son of a bitch. <laughs> Freddie, Ashley's cousin, could not contain himself. I believe, Tony, that you just violated the terms and conditions of your contract. I picked up the inquiry. What did he give you for it? I wanted to hear him say it. $100,000. I was taken aback. 
Tony's house on the other side of the road was little more than a falling down shed with a couple of blocky additions, black trim, paint peeled shack by the side of the road with black trim. But for some reason, Paul Brown was dropping tall piles of banknotes in Cranberry Gap, trying to keep everybody, or at least Charles Smith and Tony Cook, happy. I tried to remember more law, anything from my courses in contracts and property law that might be relevant here. Did he hold a gun to your head? I asked. What's that? Were you under duress? Were you forced to sell it to him? I was high on pills, <laughs> Tony said helpfully. Ashley could not take it anymore. You're a dumbass, she said, <laughs> with the dismissive venom that is the specialty of 14-year-old girls. Tony paused and he smiled wide. No, I ain't, he said. I'm one rich son of a bitch is what I am. And you, young lady, ought not talk to your daddy like that. It's ugly. So this is my team. <laughs> this is the first time I spent any extended time with them. And I thought, my Lord, <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? Um, I liked their spirit. And I liked, I learned immediately that they were, um, they knew everything about how our community worked. They knew um, the people in the courthouse better than I had. I'd never been involved in a lawsuit before, even though I went to law school for three years. But I had the distinct feeling that they had spent time in the um, system. And uh, <laughs> that, that they knew the clerk of court and that they knew um, the judges that we were going to appear before. And they became this incredible resource for me as they gave me confidence to file a lawsuit on behalf of Ollie, who was an adjoining landowner to the site, seeking redress for the fact that she did not have a right to oppose this permit before it was issued. This permit was issued with no public hearings through sleight of hand. As in almost every jurisdiction I can think of, when you ha apply for a mining permit, you have to notify the adjoining landowners of their right to seek a public hearing, and the public hearing is where you find out if there's a hospital next door or a cemetery or any of the other things that you don't want moving around under undulating earth, daycare center, a uh, prized trout stream, a national park in this case. The Appalachian Trail is a unit of the National Park System, and that's why Don Barger's group's participation in this was critical. The only problem is the Appalachian National Scenic Trail, even though it's a National Park unit, did not have standing to sue in this case because it was not an aggrieved party, because it was not an adjoining landowner. Its land did not touch the mine site. Ollie Cox's land touched this site. So as much as the United States Department of the Interior and all these national conservation organizations wanted to have this permit revoked, it all rested on Ollie Cox's shoulders. You've now been in her home, and you can evaluate our chances of success. As Ollie told me, son, I've not never wanted nothing. The triple negative. Do we have a moment for me to read one more short passage? Okay. So it became apparent very quickly that we needed to sue 
somebody, and we were not sure who to sue. We didn't know whether we needed to sue Paul Brown for submitting a mind map that made it look like there were no adjoining landowners by pulling his permit 50 feet in around every contour of the site. Was that intentional fraud so there would be no public hearings, or was it sloppiness? Or should we sue the state of North Carolina for not noticing that the mine company had pulled their boundary in 50 feet, leading to no public hearings. I engaged an attorney. I talked to one of my neighbors who's an attorney. He recommended um, a very able retired Superior Court judge named Forrest Farrell. I sat down with Forrest Farrell for an hour, and I told him the story about how these people were living right next to this site and how there was a national park unit up on the hill behind their house, and there might be several angles. We could go at this thing, and he listened for an hour, and then he said, well, we need to get the heel hound in on this. And I said, the heel hound? I don't know who that is, but I like the sound of it. <laughs> so he gave me a scrap of paper, and he said, meet me at this law office in the morning, and you're going to meet the heel hound. And now I'm going to introduce him to you. The next morning, I drove south on Highway 19E to meet with Ron Howell, the aforementioned heel hound. My neighbor, Witt, my lawyer friend, Bill, the lawyer I had met the day before, Forrest, all met me at the door of an unassuming brick building on the road going into Burnsville. I introduced Forrest to Witt, hailing him as our photographer in the less volatile half of the Jay and Witt show. We stepped inside a cramped lobby, filled a space cluttered with a jumble of cast-off furniture and piled books. It looked as if a creek had jumped its banks and coursed through the place, rearranging all. A kindly receptionist apologized for this darn mess, told us we could go on back. We navigated a hall filled with reams of paper and more piles of books, dysfunctional fax machines, and a photocopier. We squeezed into a small office where we sat on orange vinyl sofas that looked as if they were cast-offs from a health clinic or a dormitory lobby at Clemson University. I didn't say the University of Tennessee. <laughs> Soon enough, Ron Howell himself appeared, we all rose. Judge Howell, retired, now practicing law, stepped around file folders to land behind his desk where he lumbered into his swivel chair. He then reared back and as suddenly leaned all the way forward. He squinted hard to regard us. Had he not actually seen us until he was seated? Judge Farrell, he said, is that you? As if he were only venturing a guess. Forrest, the attorney I'd met the day before, bowed, rather elaborately, to make greetings and introductions. Everybody, this here is Ron Howell, the heel hound of the mountains. Once you've got Ron Howell on your scent, he'll nip you till you tire. He don't ever give up. Ron seemed pleased at the summation of his qualifications. He shook hands all around and mumbled kindnesses and greetings. He asked us to be seated, and we sat. He was a country lawyer in the best sense. Like Forrest, he was a retired Superior Court judge. He came from a long line of mountain men. But he had traveled out of the mountains as a young man, sought education and betterment in Chapel Hill, stood tall as one of the leading citizens in the small town of Burnsville. From where I sat, I could see behind Judge Howe's desk, and what I saw tickled me. I watched, transfixed, as he used his right foot to kick off his left shoe. He then repeated the maneuver with the other shoe. And I watched as he slid his stocking feet into a pair of corduroy bedroom slippers, the kind men get from their grandchildren on Christmas morning. 
Now, Judge Farrell, the slipper-footed judge, said at great length, What business do you bring before me today? What have you? Judge Farrell cracked up. Well, Your Honor, we've got us a mess over in Avery County. Ron pushed his eyeglasses up on his nose. Avery County, you say, the Gomorrah of the Mountain Counties. <laughs> now, I knew what he was talking about because there was press all over the county at that point. Our sheriff, I mentioned earlier my neighbor Sparky, who kept having people die where he is at. Well, um, Sparky, one of the people he killed was Nod Buchanan. And um, a sheriff's race hinged on solving the murder of Nod Buchanan because of Sparks was the sheriff, and he didn't investigate. Instead, their department ruled that this person who had been eviscerated with a mowing sickle across the belly and had cigarettes put out on his back, they ruled it as a malicious suicide. <laughs> no lie. So the Buchanan family thought this was an outrage, so Richard Buchanan ran for sheriff on the platform of, I will solve the murder of Nod Buchanan. He won. Well, then the Sparks deputies that were still in pinned evidence on him and accused him of stealing from prisoners. So he was in jail. And the night before I met Ron Howell, the deputy, when he went to jail, the deputy that replaced him the very night before had been arrested for selling pot out of his patrol car. So that's what, that's what Ron Howell was talking about. Now Forrest asked me to describe the conflict over the permit for the Putnam mine. Tell him the good parts, he said. His honor can take it. I assure you of that. I dove into my story and I lay heavily on the failure of Clarkstone to notify the adjoining landowners of their right to seek a public hearing before the permit was issued. Don't tarry, counselor, Judge Howe said. For Judge Howe, he said, referring to himself, suffers with narcolepsy and you could lose him at any moment. <laughs> Let's get to the good part. Let's get to the part about Charles Gardner. Charles Gardner, I said, I was impressed. Charles Gardner is the one that issued the permit. Oh, of that I've no doubt, Ron Howell said. I hurried along, and presently the judge said, Let me ask you something, young man. I can't remember your name. I'm bad to forget things. But how long did it take this permit to get itself issued? I don't know, I said. I'll have to check. But not content to wait, Judge Howell motioned my way. Give me those papers you've got. I handed him my file folders, which were in considerable disarray, one thing piled on top of another, random sheets seeking escape, but the retired judge knew just what he was looking for. He flipped through and extracted the permit application, went through it with economy. He hummed, nodded, and tapped on his desk. 74 calendar days, he said. That might be a new world record. Forrest smiled broadly at this feat, his taste in co-counsel plain for all to see. Now we sat in silence as Ron flipped through more of my papers. There was no telling what else he might turn up. Judge Howe now put his face in his hands as if he were washing it after a nap. It was a gesture of exhaustion. Surely we had interrupted some arduous task that had sapped much of his energy. And when he took his hands away from his face, he spoke. What we have here, Judge Farrell, gentlemen, interested parties from Avery County, is a new world record in the heptathlon event of permit issuing. 
This permit went through Charles Gardner's office like shit through a goose. (laughs) And I'd say we've got us a case. Somewhere in here we do. Tapped on the stack of documents. What we have here, I believe, Your Honor, Judge Howe, is a serial bad actor. He didn't follow the Mining Act at the Linville site, and he's not following it here on Bellevue Mountain. Ron sat back and hummed the tune, Wildwood Flower. What we have here, he said, interrupting himself, is a failure to give notice to the adjoining landowners and a failure to have public hearings in furtherance of the objectives of the Mining Act of 1971. Wrapped on his desk with a closed fist and his voice shot way up in his nasal passages and he said with thrust and emphasis, and you can't do that. He had represented adjoining landowners in mining cases before. He told us about a case involving Vulcan materials, a sand and gravel behemoth that Don Barger had mentioned to me. Vulcan owns quarries all over the United States. Ron's case involved a quarry planned for a site alongside a major highway. Vulcan filed a complete application in which they notified everybody, even people across a four-lane highway, even people they didn't have to notify. For all I know, they notified Judge Farrell here, and by the end, they were inviting dogs and cats and winged creatures (laughs) to submit public comments. Why would they do that, I asked. Oh, listen here, the big companies, they don't fool around. They might be bad neighbors and destroy everything you own with the blasting and the dust, but they don't fool around with notice, and they don't flout the statute. Because, you see, public hearings never yield much in the way of impediments. Rarely do they yield anything at all, save for the feel-good misunderstanding that one is being heard. But woe be unto that man that skips this part of the process for avoiding notice can be fatal to the cause. And let me tell you why. Because it's like original sin. And of course the fruit of a poison tree will kill you just as dead. He tapped on his own temple with a crooked finger. I'd say that's your case. Notice to your friend there. Ollie Cox, I asked, just to be sure. Miss Cox, indeed, she has been violated, if only in the constitutional sense. But that ought to be enough to get us in front of a judge if we can find one that's read the Constitution. (laughs) Witt pulled out the most recent of his photographs and he played them out on Ron's desk. The wizened lawyer picked up each one and turned it this way and that in an effort to reduce the glare on the glossy finish. He dropped them one by one. He let them fall in an untidy heap as if to discard such newfangled storytelling tools. When he was through them all, he made to speak, but not about the photographs. Have you come to retain my services, he asked rather suddenly. I looked to Forrest and to Bill. Bill said, we have, if you're interested. Ron could not help but smile. Oh, I'm interested. The things that Charles Gardner gets up to are very interesting to me. I like it better than the movies. Well, what do we do next, we asked. Judge Howe seemed to have more important business to tend to for a moment. He took great care plucking a stray thread from the sleeve of his jacket. He then ceremoniously set it loose over the edge of his desk, letting it drift to the floor. That done, he looked at me over his glasses. Now you say you've got these ladies living next to this proposed mine site, and you've got these hikers 
who may or may not be driven to the point of despair as their wilderness perambulations may, ad- may be adversely affected by all this racket. But they have to meet with their, their boards of directors and they've got to conduct, uh, what did you call it? Meetings, I offered, sheepish, for reasons I could not name. Meetings, he repeated. Meetings and evaluations of the ramifications. And in the meantime, Bellevue Mountain is coming down and the soil is running into the creeks, killing the helpless speckled trouts and the waterborne whatnots, the elk toe mussels. Yes, sir, I said. Well, that brings me to my point. If you want to act, you need to act fast. Yesterday is not too soon because hear this. If they turn that crusher on, if they get it running for a single second, for a minute or an afternoon, it will run flat out for the 99 years of that lease. I do not know the judge who will stop that thing if it's operational. And I know all the judges you're likely to appear before. Ron carried on. That brings me to the most important part of my aforementioned point, a point which I've now been brought to, which is a matter of my fee. We all lean slightly forward. I ask you this, Hal said, turning his gaze to me. Are you, young man, going to have to have a cake sale to pay my fees, which are not inconsiderable? Sounds like a band of widows and orphans and boys in short pants to me. His colleague Forrest Farrell howled at this, and we took his lead. We joined him in this good laugh, including me, though I had no idea where we would get the money for a single lawyer, much less a pair. Was not sure anything funny was going on here at all, but it was done. With a robust shaking of hands all around, the Dogtown Bunch had officially retained the services of Judge Forrest Farrell, retired, Judge Ronald Howell, retired, the heel hound of the mountains. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so a lot of people want to know what it costs to sue somebody. I went to law school and I didn't know, but I was terrified on that day. And I can tell you that uh, my little bunch of neighbors, we raised $60,000 to hire Ron Howell and Forrest Farrell. That got us through the North Carolina Court of Appeals um, four years in court from start to finish. However... We won this case because we were represented also by the Southern, Appala- Southern Environmental Law Center, um, who has offices throughout the southeast, and they represented Don's group, National Parks Conservation Association, Appalachian Trail Conservancy, and we all sued the state of North Carolina as hard as we could, and then the state did something they had told me in a closed meeting they would not do. They revoked the permit. And we all ended up on the same side defending the state's authority to revoke a permit when it finds out it's violating the statute. And this case established that you not only have the authority to do what is right, no matter when you discover it, you have the duty to do it. And had we lost that case, administrative law would have been turned on its head in North Carolina and the state would have been largely powerless to correct mistakes that it should have initially denied the permit for once it discovers them. So the Southern Environmental Law Center at the end of the case presented me with a bill for $372,000, which I did not have to pay because they are a nonprofit law firm. So um, you've heard a lot about 
nonprofits. You've heard about my nonprofit land trust. You've heard about National Parks Conservation Association. I think there's some literature back there about that great group. Google Southern Environmental Law Center, these are all, all great groups. You don't need to join my land trust, but there's an analog here. They're local land trusts working in this part of Tennessee. Um, and I always tell people when they want to know where to start in protecting the places they love, start with your local land trust. And um, there are 2,200 of them in the country, and it's a powerful movement. So I'd love to answer any questions that uh, folks might have and love to meet any of you after I fall silent. Anybody have a question? Yes. Well, first of all, I love the book. And um, at the beginning, you referenced some ridgetop development that was going on adjacent to your house. Um, has that been stopped, or is that your next crusade? Well, it's really interesting. I um, After this case, uh, the law is a very powerful tool, but it's not the only tool in the toolkit for protecting the landscape in ways that I think we need to protect it. We need to start with protecting our water supply. And aesthetic concerns come a little bit lower down on the list of the things you absolutely must do to be successful to give us all a place we can live into the future. We want to protect wildlife habitat. We want to protect places to um, have open space to roam and to um, Michelle Obama's campaign, I think, is, is about reducing obesity. And you have to have greenways and trails and places where we can recreate. All those things are, are important. Um, ridgetop development is one of the things that most offended me as a child. And um, I felt in my career that the most effective tool is to buy that land. The land that you value most, you need to buy it and you need to get public buy-in for protecting it together. And that means adding it to a Tennessee state natural area or state parks if it rises to that level. Some of it belongs in federal ownership if it's Cherokee National Forest land and it's within the proclamation boundaries. Um, but there's a lot of private land where we just need good, strong local ordinances on not building on steep slopes that are going to give way in heavy rains as a concern of public safety. And then somewhere in there, if we can express our own um, concerns about aesthetics and what it feels like to be in a place that feels like wilderness, I think that's a really important value. And um, it's difficult when the economy is roaring to convince county leaders that they should put any kind of limits on what people can do on private land. But a lot of the development I was most concerned about was halted in the economic crisis. And that's given my land trust an opportunity to work with landowners to try to buy what we value. And we've, we've had some success doing that with reduced values. There's also reduced public funding to make it possible for land trust to buy what they value. But uh, that's where I think it starts. Yes. I just, I don't have a question. I just want to thank you for coming. And I, I wish that Don and other people here could arrange for a lot more people in Knoxville and Knox County in this area to hear you. Uh, you tell a good story. It's not a story. It's true. And you remind me of Atticus and To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. I always said that if... If I wrote this book and it weren't a good book, it would be because I suck as a writer. Because this is a good story. These are compelling people fighting for something that they care about 
And the thing that they care about is something we all ought to care about. And um, so I, it was an honor to get to write their story and, and tell the um, struggles that they had. And uh, I finally found my story. I, it's, it's not fiction. It was something I couldn't have made up. But uh, every day when I sat down to write it, I felt that it was a, a privilege to be in a place where I could maybe tell a story that they weren't go- going to go out and, and tell on their own. So. Yes? I was wondering about Ashley, about God, what happened to her. Yeah. <laughs> so Ashley is this remarkable person who I met when she was 14, and I think probably what Don's talking about. Recently, I, um, I talked to Ashley on the phone, I don't know, every other week probably, and um, we actually now speak on Facebook sometimes. The publisher made me get a Facebook page, which I probably wouldn't have done otherwise. But it's great because I can keep up with what Ashley's buying on Farmville. Um, <laughs> Ashley needs a bucket of strawberries. Um, so Ashley is a senior now in college. She's taking her classes distance learning over the Internet at UNC Greensboro. She does not want to leave Ollie's side nor does Ollie want her to leave her side. So uh, they are bound together for eternity, I believe. Um, She maintains a 4.0 grade point average, and she also has continued to cultivate talents that are not typical in uh, 14-year-old girls or 21-year-old girls, perhaps, in her landscape. But I was talking to her on the phone recently, and she said, what's that noise? And I said, can you hear that over the phone? I'm on I-40 driving down the road. And she said, yeah. And I said, I don't know what it can be because I just had my alignment worked on. And she said, that don't sound like an alignment. That sounds like motor mounts. <laughs> she said, is it pulling to the right? And I said, it's pulling to the right. <laughs> she said, yeah, that's motor mounts. <laughs> so uh, she and her cousin Freddie have a little business. They buy four-wheelers online and they rehab them and then they sell them and they are um they're automotive magnates at this point i think they do pretty well with it <laughs> so yes um what was the interval from the time that you first met judge Howe and the time you started to write and how did you recall all of the nuances of his colorful use of language yeah that's a that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I I knew after about a week of knowing Ashley and Ollie that I would write about this, and I was new to the internet. And Ashley sort of taught me how to use it and got my email account set up. And I started emailing about the case, and I had over four thousand emails saved between two thousand and two thousand and four. And one of the things I learned early on that we might win this case by telling this story. This was happening in a really remote part of the state. I knew we needed to tell this story, so I told it over and over again, starting at my own family's dinner table. And I would tell my nieces and my nephews and my sister and my mother and my neighbors. And these stories of these people got told over and over again in sort of an oral history. And then a lot of it was recorded in emails that I would send to law school classmates that I was trying to get into the case. And so some of the snatches of dialogue were recorded in that way through my emails. Some were stories that got retold. Some of this I could never forget that Ron Howell said. 
And I'll tell you that um, his nephew, Ron Howell's nephew, Dennis, is a U.S. magistrate in Asheville, North Carolina. And when he read the book, he wrote me a letter and he said, Jay, when um, Uncle Ron died, one of the things that made me most sad was that I would never hear him speak again. But in your book, I can hear him speak. And that was a real tribute to the care I tried to take in recording accurately what people said, how they spoke. I knew that if I did not, um, if I took liberties with that, which would be easy to want to do, um, that it would bite me. And because I was going to write in dialect for my mountain neighbors. And um, so I took great care in taking copious notes. And I have an ear for language as well. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.